this morning. Can I ask you a question? Last week we started off with a question, who defines your life, who gets to define you? Can I ask you this question, what's the good life? What is the good life? Maybe when I ask that question, it brings up notions in your mind of of what a good life would be. Maybe sometimes it's a sinful orientation. A good life would be for me to have all the material stuff that I ever wanted. Maybe the good life is this moral life, this life of goodness. What is the good life to you? Say it this way. If you could wake up tomorrow morning and you could do whatever it is you wanted to do, what would you do? Sometimes I play a game with myself when I'm unhappy. That, that happens to me. I actually get unhappy. You might not think that, but it does. And I play this game with myself where I think, what am I lacking? What is there that I don't have that I think that I need? And inevitably, I come to this conclusion. There is nothing that I'm lacking that will change my mood. So the problem is me, Right? See, we do this, and, and we ask, what is the good life? Because it frames the discussion about what God has created and how he created us to live. And I want to kind of dig into Genesis chapter 2 and see a world of blessing that God has brought to us that we want to reorient ourselves to. So here's our big idea. The good life is only good when it's directed by God. The good life is only good when it's directed by God. And so I want to cancel all notions this morning that there's some life that exists apart from God's goodness and God's authority over us. I want to kind of just deal with that and say you cannot find happiness outside of submission to God. So our outline goes like this. In verses 1 through 3, we're going to see that God gives rest. God gives his people rest, and he lays the foundations in verses 1 through 3 for us to take this thing called Sabbath, and we'll talk about that. Verses 4 through 14, or 4 through 17, excuse me, he gives work. And then finally, in verses 18 through 25, God gives companionship. This morning, I just want to stop. I just want to ask God to bless our time. We have a lot to cover. I want to ask God that he blesses what we say and what we speak this morning. God, we pray. Now, we plead with you that you would speak to your people. God, you know my heart in this text. You know that I feel inadequate to speak this word. So we need your presence here. We need your spirit to bring knowledge and understanding. And we plead with you this morning to do that. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. See, the first thing God gives is he gives rest. Look at verses 1 through 3 of Genesis chapter 2. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So Moses is drawing our attention to this idea that God has finished his work. In fact, he repeats that phrase some three times in these three verses, doesn't he? He, he kind of sums it all up and he says, God ceased from his work. 
We go back into Genesis 1, verse 31, and, and we see that God declares everything that's created very good, right? We saw the system throughout Genesis 1. He creates light, and it's good. And he creates this, and it's good, and that, and it's good. And finally, in verse 31, he summarizes it all, and he says, everything is very good. And so in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he takes a rest. He stops from his work. And what he does in verse 3 is that he blesses the seventh day and he, he calls it holy. And you might be saying, what's that word mean? That sounds like a really religious word. What does it mean for something to be holy? Well, if we were to fast forward to the book of Exodus and see uh, when God uh, directs Moses to create the tabernacle, there are these things that are for use in the tabernacle or in the temple that are set apart specifically for God and for his purpose. And so, you know, you had this, this, uh, this wash basin or something that was used. It was solely used for the purpose that God had set it apart for. The priests themselves were to be consecrated. And they went through this whole ritual to consecrate themselves and to be made holy. And that's the word that God uses here about this seventh day. He's setting it aside for his particular purpose. Now, why does God call it holy? Does he just want it to, for himself to make mental note that this is holy? No, down the line in the book of Exodus, he's going to create this thing called Sabbath. And that is that every Saturday, every good law-abiding Jew was to cease from all their labor. They were to stop their work. And so God creates this space for rest. He leaves an example that when his work is finished, he doesn't just go on to another task, but he stops. He sees that it's good. He considers what he's accomplished. Let me ask you a question here this morning. Do you rest? Do you rest? One problem we've seen just in recent years is that everybody's continually busy. We do too much too often. And then we wonder why we are absolutely exhausted. Maybe you even said that this morning. Somebody will ask you, how are you doing? And you'll say, I'm tired. I'm worn out. And I want to give you a recipe for exhaustion and frustration. You want to start with a hefty portion of I can do anything I put my mind to. And you mix in two tablespoons of kids' sports schedules. You add in just a touch of a pinch of the boss's demands at work. You season lightly with parental guilt. And you let it all bake in the oven of cultural pressure. And voila, frustration, tiredness, exhaustion. Anybody feel like that? I feel like that. We just grind all the time, don't we? And we push and push. And here's this statement from God that he's created us to rest. I've realized this in, in, in the last few years. That if I go to work a 70-hour work week and I just try and grind it out, my body and mind are going to give me a 50-hour work week. And if I go to work a 30-hour work week, my body and mind are going to give me a 40-hour work week. I, I really balance out between 40 and 50 hours. That's just something that when I go to work extra, I, my productivity slows way down, like way down, right? And when I go to, to take a light week, my, my mind stirs with things that I have to go do. It's like God created us to just take some time, to stop, to consider what's going on 
around us. See, this is what most of us do, is we trade in one type of work for a different type of work and then call it vacation or rest. You ever do that? You say, what I'm going to do this Saturday is I'm going, to, I'm going to catch up on all the things I have to do around the house, right? You get the honeydew list out. And that, by the way, that can work both ways, right? Males and females can have honeydew lists. You could say, I'm going to catch up with the kids this Saturday. And, and really, it's just another thing of work. This is the work that I have for this day. And so we're just constantly trying to work. We frantically fill a Saturday with activities with our kids or at home or whatever else, with sports or whatever, and, and we call it rest, and it's not rest. If God models anything for us in Sabbath, it's the ability to stop and consider the goodness of what he's done. to enjoy the quiet moment of reviewing God's goodness and faithfulness. It's the ability to put down our need to be productive in preference for our need to see God's activity. Let me just ask, what keeps you from being quiet before your God? What is it that is so pressing that you can't take a few hours just to consider God's goodness to you in the last week? what I love about this passage is that he doesn't just stop and give man rest. He wants to go on in verses 4 through 17. He's going to give us work. So in this verse 4, we see this opening statement. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And some of you might not know about the book of Genesis is some 10 or 12 times throughout the book of Genesis, we're going to see this exact formula where Moses says, these are the generations of Noah. These are the generations of Shem. These are the generations of Ishmael. And all the time, he's always framing this book along these lines, tracing down the generations of what's created. This one's unique though, and that is giving us the generations of not of a person, but of the creation. He's going to tell the story of exactly how God created mankind and what exactly he oriented them to. And so we dig in in verse 5. He says, when no bush of the field uh, was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. See, the first thing happens is that Moses describes this kind of desert area. Right In verses 5 and 6, he lays out, he says, there's this area where nothing's growing. And here's what's weird is there's water there. But nothing's growing. Why is nothing growing? In verse 6, he tells us it's because there's no man to cultivate it. Remember, God had created man to do his work, to, to fill the earth and subdue it. And part of subduing this work or this earth was to plant this garden, to actually see things thrive. And so this is exactly what happens as God creates in verses 7 through 9. Look at verse 7. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed life into his nostrils, the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man uh, whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so uh, God creates this garden, and he places man, Adam, in the midst of this garden. 
right? And verse 7 says that he forms man. It's kind of like a potter forms a work of clay. That's kind of the wording and the usage there. He kind of forms mankind out of this dirt. And then secondly, he kind of breathes out of his, his mouth the, the breath of life into Adam so that God brings man to life with his own breath. Last week we saw that, that man was in creation but above creation, and we see that here. He's in creation, he's just dirt, he's just dust, but he's above creation in that God breathes the breath of life into mankind uniquely. But verse 8 tells us that God creates this, this garden. In fact, the word Eden actually means paradise. Uh, it's kind of just this kind of play on words, that God's creating this space, this garden, in this place called Eden that is a paradise. And verse 9 describes what kind of paradise this is. It's filled with all of these fruit-bearing trees. And it's not just pleasant for food and for eating. It's beautiful to the eyes. So it's aesthetically pleasing and physically pleasing to Adam. Verses 10 through 14, we didn't read this, but it kind of goes on to show that this is a, a real place. Uh, Look at verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first was the Pishon. It's the one that flowed around the uh, whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is Gihon. It's the, uh, excuse me, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. See, God is orienting us to a real physical place. We know some of these locations. Some of them we don't know. We don't know what the Pishon is or whatever else, but we know Cush, and we know the Euphrates. We know uh, the Tigris. We know all of these locations, and that God is showing us this is a real place, that this actually happened. So verses 10 through 14 kind of clue us in there. But verse 9 is so important for us. Verses 9 and verses 15 through 17 really frame a lot of the discussion in this passage. And what happens is that God introduces us to these two trees. A lot of us are familiar with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but there's also this other tree, the tree of life. It is exactly what it says it is. It's the tree by which Adam and Eve, if they were to eat of it, would gain eternal life. We see this uh, a chapter later in chapter 3, verse 22, where, where God is speaking to himself about man who's just sinned. And he said, if he reaches out and he takes hold of the tree of, of life, he will become like us and live forever in this state of sinfulness. And so he kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden so they might not eat of this tree of life. This is the, the, the fruit that if they ate of it, they would live eternally as, as God lives eternally. But secondly, there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This one's a little harder to kind of define. What exactly is a tree of knowledge of good and evil? We get the perspective later on in Genesis 3, Eve eats of it, and, and the Bible says that her eyes were open, that this has some kind of quality that it actually opens or changes the understanding of Adam and Eve. There's something about this fruit that brings previously unheld awareness. But probably what's most important about this, these trees, is how God speaks of them in verses 15 through 17. Look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. 
There's a, a slew of commandments and directions that are given here to Adam. And it's good for us just to kind of dissect what exactly is going on. In verse 15, excuse me, in verse 15, Adam is to kind of cultivate and keep this garden. Right? Kind of makes sense. But really, these two terms are really unique. Throughout the best, rest of the Bible, these terms are going to be used to describe the activity of a priest that he cultivates or serves and he keeps or guards. And so what the author is really laying out for us here is that this is kind of like a, a, a pre-fall temple that Adam is called to keep, that he's called to cultivate and, and kind of serve in this temple so that the, the plants are kept up, that the, the nature is provided for, that Adam kind of becomes this nexus between God and, and the creation like he was created to be, and he's to, to keep it, he's to, to guard it. What happens in the next chapter? A talking snake breaks into the midst and tempts his wife. And he fails to guard and keep the temple that God had entrusted to him. But that's not the only command that he has here. In verses 16 through 17, God lays out exactly what he's supposed to do with these two trees. The Lord God said, uh, commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. And God starts off with this generous provision, doesn't he? He says, any tree you want to eat of is yours. Go ahead and partake of anything here. Notice the freedom that God gives to Adam. Any tree is good for his use, minus one, because that's what happens next, right? There is a gentle prohibition, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat commandment is as clear as day. This tree is strictly forbidden. That might be the only thing we really need to say about it, right? This represents a way of seeking knowledge apart from God. It likely holds the possibility of forbidden wisdom from God. It's the tree of knowledge of good and evil that God has told us not to partake of, and this is exactly what he's going to do. Later on in chapter 3, God kind of once again conferences amongst himself and he says that it's not good that they, they now have become like us, knowing good and evil. And finally, he closes with a genuine prediction. For in the day that you eat of it, what's going to happen? You will surely die. You know, we see this all the time through the scriptures. We, see, you know, we all hear it in Sunday school, Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is what? Death. And we see it all the time throughout the scriptures that when men disobey God's word, they come into a confrontation with their own death. There's the story of Nadab and Abihu when they offer a strange fire in Leviticus chapter 10, and they come before God and they, they disobey God's word. God immediately consumes them. The fire comes out from his presence and consumes Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. There's the story of, of when the Israelites are moving the ark of God and Usa reaches up to stabilize the ark of God as it's on a cart, which they were forbidden to do. And he reaches up and God strikes him dead because he has violated God's words. See, when we disobey God's word, it brings death, doesn't it? And so God 
And one through three gave us rest. Here, he gives us work. He gives us clear definition. Not only does God make provision for rest, he also gives us good work. Not just the work of cultivating and keeping, but the work of obeying his word and fulfilling and heeding his commandments. Now just notice, just pull back for a second from Genesis 2 and just notice all of the things that Adam and Eve have been given thus far. They've been given this beautiful garden that is aesthetically pleasing to them. They have clear, manageable labor laid out for them. They have physical sustenance. All of the trees of the garden are at their disposal. They have spiritual communion with God. Adam's life in the garden is truly the good life, isn't it? Everything is there at his disposal. He has no frustration in his labor. He has constant access to God. He has everything he seemingly needs. And if Adam continues in this world, he will take of that tree of life at some point, and he will live forever. You know, it's just a reminder to us that our work is meant to be fulfilling. Let me just say that again because I think I need to hear it this morning. Our work is meant to be fulfilling. It was meant by God to give joy to us. It's a means by which we would exhibit his image unto his watching world. But too often, our work becomes burdensome, doesn't it? I bet it wouldn't take long for each of us just to, to kind of pry into your life, for you to pry into my life and find the discontent that we have in our work. It's not just because we're frustrated. Like Genesis 3 tells us that we're going to be frustrated. We're going to experience toil in our labor. But it's because we have a, a discontent. We have a sinful approach to our own labor. Let me ask you a question. Do you let your work serve you? Or do you serve your work? Do you find yourself ruled over by the pressures and demands of your day-to-day work life? You come home and, and bring home all of the pressure of the things that you feel, and you just lay it on your wife and on your kids. I do that. You bring home your stress. Do you uh, lay your stress on your coworkers in such a way that they're frustrated with you? Experience that, don't we? And the way God closes out this chapter is he's given us rest, he's given us work, <clears throat> but he's also going to give us companionship. I need that water. Hold on. <clears throat> so in verses 18 through 25, God's going to give us companionship. Look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable, suitable helper. It's kind of a weird story, isn't it? I mean... Adam, God sees for the first time in the scripture, he says, hey, I see this thing and it's not good. Thus far, we've seen everything be good and very good. And now God looks at this situation with Adam and he says, this is, is not good. 
And so what he starts to do is he starts to parade all of these animals in front of, of Adam. And Adam's just like spitting out names, right? You ever think about how weird like platypus is? Where did that come from? You know, not that that's the way it worked, but yeah. Adam starts spitting out these names of, of the creation. And he sees male platypus and female platypus. He sees male horse and female horse, male norwal and female norwal, whatever. I don't know. You say, what is this? What is God doing? Well, at the end, in verse 18, he, he kind of wraps it up and he says, there's not a helper found suitable for Adam. There's not a counterpart that's, that's found for Adam. And so as Adam is carrying out this task, he's raising up this discontentedness in Adam so that he sees this. And then in verse 19, excuse me, that's not it. Oh, I'm reading the wrong chapter, that's why. Uh, in verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept he took one of his ribs and closed up up its flesh and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man and the man said this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man and so God creates, he causes Adam to fall into this deep sleep, right? To kind of go under the anesthesia, as it were. And he pulls the rib out of Adam. And then he goes and he fashions it into the same form. The form of, of the counterpart that he was looking for. Into this form of a woman. And we mean that this is this deep sleep that God is, is brought into. And he takes the rib out and he fashions this woman uh, for Adam. And then he brings Adam, or brings this woman to Adam, and he responds, and he says, this then is bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. Like, this is like me. This is that helper that I've been looking for that I haven't found. And now uh, I'm going to call her woman. Not, not like, whoa, man, right? Woman, it's like, she's like me. She was taken out of man. You know, Matthew Henry has this great uh, comment on this. And I, I love this, this comment by Matthew Henry. It's on the screen. He says, women were created from the rib of man to be beside him, not from his head to top him, nor from his feet to be trampled by him, but from under his arm to be protected by him, near to his heart to be loved by him. And really, this is the beginning of what we would theologically call complementarianism. It's the idea that male and female were created as equals before God, but were to complement one another in the tasks and jobs that they were called to do. See, complementarian is, is, is the belief that men and women are designed by God to complement one another in different functions. And here we see the beginnings of this, right? Adam is created with a specific call, and Eve is created with another call. And it's not to kind of embody everything about male and femaleness, but it, it hints at this idea that they complement or, or kind of match one another. Each has their own sense of honor, and each is receiving their work from God. Think about how Adam was supposed to fulfill what happened in Genesis 1, 28. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. How is Adam supposed to multiply without a wife? So... He has a unique work for each man and for woman. So 
See, God gives us rest. God gives us work. God gives us marriage, right? Part of living in Eden means relating well. And if you're here and you're single with us this morning, I just want to highlight this idea that relationships really broke down after the fall. We'll we'll talk about the fall next week when we get into Genesis 3. Paul later on is going to say, hey, I wish you were like me. I wish that you were, everyone was single like I am. And he's saying this on the far side of, of sinful humanity and recognizing that there's something that sets us free when we're not tied necessarily to another spouse. So if you're single here, with there's space. There's space for you to still be an image bearer of God, to still do what God has called you to do. But, but God has given us this, this marriage relationship, but even beyond that, just the idea of relating at all, that God creates someone else for Adam to kind of interact with. And yet for many, uh, you know, our relationships are just this point of frustration. This is why we have the term ball and chain, right? You ever hear somebody refer to their spouse that way, the old ball and chain? I've never said anything like that. <laughs> just turn on the latest sitcom. You'll find the husband who's anything but ideal. He's dumb, lazy, clueless, indifferent to the needs of his wife. It's probably pretty true to reality, actually. Okay, that was a joke, yeah. Meanwhile, the wife is portrayed as, as this uber-competent individual, but she's nagging the husband to get done whatever she needs to get done. She's just constantly pushing him, constantly having to drag him by the nose to get done whatever needs to get done. Can I just suggest that if we see our spouses as disappointing, may it be, might it be, because... We've made them into our own God. That we've asked them to fulfill a role that they're not asked to fulfill in our hearts and in our lives. See, when you ask your spouse to become all-defining for you, when you look for that kind of notebook romanticism in your, I don't know, there's probably lots of that, that, that kind of high view of romantic interaction, I'm guaranteeing you that spouse is destined to fail. Guys, when you look to your spouse for that all-defining, transcendent sexual experience, I'm guaranteeing it will not happen. Inevitably, your spouse is going to fail you and you will feel frustrated. If you have all of your eggs in the relationship basket, you will find yourself hurt, won't you? kind of highlights something for us. Each time we've looked at rest and each time we've looked at work and we've looked at our marriage and we've said there's, there's such a propensity for us to have brokenness in all of these capacities. Isn't that true? And we can step back and see the beauty of what God has for us in this passage, but we also step back and we see that we've made a mess of it, haven't we? Outside of a relationship with Christ... Our rest, our work, our relationships with our spouses, they they become all-defining. They become these idols that we have to constantly bow down, constantly sacrifice to appease. And when we fail them, they never forgive us. If you make rest your idol, the God that you worship, if you just say, I'm going to do whatever I have to do to have comfort, I guarantee you, you're going to live a miserable life when you have to do the laundry Or go to work in the morning. 
If you make uh, work your God that you bow down to, if you become this workaholic that has to work to sustain this sense of well-being and and definition of goodness, then you will fall short. You will find yourself broken down. There won't be enough hours in the week for you to work, and you will physically break your body. If you try uh, to relate to your spouse without Christ at the center, I, I tell you, it will always end in this high view of romanticism or this lustful interaction. It will never become the ideal marriage that you want it to be. And so we just come and we just look at these things and say, God, I am broken. Every time I come and I look for these things, I just fail. They just, it's like sand that falls through my fingers. I cannot keep these things together. And the beauty of it is that God speaks into this. I just want to step back for a second and look at these three areas and say, God has redeemed. He's used all of these areas as images of God's redemption for us in Christ. Have you thought about that? In Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, God lays out for us that there's a true rest available to us because of the work of Christ. And if we have faith in Christ, we can stop our work And we could find ourselves renewed in God's presence. We could put down our labor and we could say, I know that God is working and I don't have to work. That's what Hebrews chapter 4 verse 10 says with such clarity. He says in verse 9, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work as God did from his Because God has finished, because Jesus pronounces at the cross, it is finished, because he's seated at the right hand of God, everything is complete. And so you and I don't have to worry. We don't have to break our backs any longer. We can rest. Let's go to the last marriage. You realize that God tells us that as the church, we are the bride of Christ We saw this in Ephesians 5, right? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Why? So that he could present to himself the church in all his glory, in all its glory, without any spot or wrinkle or any such thing. See, God has redeemed himself a bride in the church, and he's going to present that bride to himself. You see, marriage is a picture of God's goodness in the gospel. And so God redeems our rest. He redeems our marriages. What about work? One of the most beautiful pictures I think we find in this passage is this issue of the tree of life. You realize that the Bible opens and closes with a tree? Pretty exciting book, right? It opens with the tree of life so that if Adam and Eve eat of it, they will live forever. But when they disobey and they they eat from the wrong tree, they are evicted from heaven with God. They are evicted from this paradise called Eden. But if you were to fast forward to Revelation chapter 22, it's on the screen here. Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, then the angel showed John the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were the healing of the nations. 
You see this picture, this tree of life that's described in Genesis 2 carries all the way to the new Jerusalem and it's there in the middle of the city that these 12 types of fruit are given to the nations that when they eat of it, they are healed, they they live forever in God's presence. And we say, what happened? What happened between when man ate of the wrong tree and what happened between Revelation chapter 22? What, What happened? What caused this so that we could be brought back to this tree of life, that we could have hope of eternity? Well, Jesus himself goes to a tree and he bears a curse for us. Look at Galatians chapter 3. It's on the screen in front of us, I think, maybe... Nope, it's not. Okay, Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Paul says this, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a what? On a tree. So that Jesus bears the curse. When we failed in regard to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, Jesus bears that curse for us so that we could take of the tree of life, so that we could be brought back into God's presence. So that Jesus, as he sheds his blood upon the cross, does so in his complete innocence, but does so because we had violated his right and true word. See that? See, we've lost Eden, haven't we? But praise God that he's in the business of bringing restoration. If we were to back up from Revelation 22 to to Revelation 21, God says that I am making all things new. That in our lives this morning, God is creating newness. It's not just newness of the promise of the new Jerusalem or newness of heaven. Right now, because Christ has received the curse that we deserved, we've been resurrected to new life, God is creating newness in us. Let the weight of that sink in on our hearts this morning and we recognize that God has this massive plan of redemption. He initiates us, understanding it here with the images that God has given to us. So the question is, what is the good life? The good life is that life that is submitted to God. That sees that God is bringing about redemption and wholeness in his people. That trusts in God's goodness. And tomorrow morning, you get up and you go into that workplace and you're frustrated or you come home to a frustrating marriage or, or whatever else it may be, you can recognize that God is bringing about renewal because of the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Amen? I want to pray this morning that God gives us a sense of his work. That God just hasn't abandoned us to this difficulty. God hasn't abandoned you to restlessness. God hasn't abandoned you to frustrating work environments. God hasn't abandoned you to a hopeless marriage. God is bringing about renewal. And if we trust him, if we submit to his word, we'll find grace in our time of need. God, we pray now that you would bring about grace. Make us oriented to your word to the provision that you have given us in Jesus Christ, that you would be honored and glorified in it. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.